0: to Georgia in play. I'm Leah Fleming. It is homecoming season for colleges and universities. Fort Valley State University in Middle Georgia is celebrating hits on and off the field from 1895 to the present day. That's what they say their theme is. The big parade, the tailgate, and the game is this weekend. And this weekend, the glee clubs of Morehouse College and Spelman College are going to Salt Lake City, Utah to perform live with the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square for music and the spoken word on Sunday. The Tabernacle Choir used to be known as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. You know how beautiful that is going to sound. And Georgia joins the rest of the country in expressions of support for Israel. This week, Governor Brian Kemp instructed the state treasurer to buy $10 million in bonds from Israel to support its defense efforts against Hamas. Those are some of the ways that Georgia is in play right now. Later on in this hour, you're going to hear the story of a woman who created a solution to her skin issue with the help of some sharks. Right now, I have a question for you. Are you working remotely these days, or are you back in the office? I bet this is the discussion that you are having over cocktails at dinner or over brunch with friends. And there is so much passion behind this conversation. Since the pandemic eased, employers have been trying to get employees to come back into the office. Everyone from the federal government to companies like even Zoom, y'all, even Zoom wants employees to RTO, which is return to the office. But that's easier said than done. Seems that a lot of us just don't want to come back, at least not five days a week. GPB has mandated two days a week in person on Tuesday and Thursday so that we can all work together. Lots of employees are challenged by that kind of a request, though. Stacy Haller is chief career advisor for Resume Builder. They did a survey on companies' RTO policies. Hi, Stacy.
1: Hi, Leah. Nice to be here with you.
0: Uh, it's great to have you here to talk about this. So I got to ask you first, are you working remotely these days or are you in the office?
1: I am working remotely, I have to say. And that is because I'm in a situation where for me personally, I'm doing some different kind of consulting work. But most of my career, I would not have had that flexibility, I have to say. Yeah. But today we're seeing a lot of different workplace situations struggling as are we going back in? Yeah. How much are we going back in? Right, right. So
0: tell us, what did your survey find um, in terms of Georgia? Uh, what's happening
1: with us here in Georgia? You know, I, I have to say it's really consistent across the board with everyone. Nobody stands out, even amongst industries or amongst sectors or where you are in the country. People want to work remote Mm -hmm. and there's still a tug of war of, okay, well, if we have to go in, how much do we have to go in? And if we have to go in, how are you going to make me go in? (laughs) So, you know, it it varies. You know, I don't think George is that much different because people are people wherever they're sitting across the country today and how they feel about the way they want to work. And I think we've opened the door to give us, the employees, a voice in that. And that's why when employers are saying we want to do this, everybody's saying, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't want to do this, or maybe I want to work for a company that's totally remote, or maybe I have choices. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I know some of the key findings, nine in 10 companies with office space will have returned to the office by 2024.
1: So the key to that sentence is with office space, right? Right. Tells you what the driver might be. You know, many of these companies have office space. That money is going into a black hole right now, and they're locked into leases. So that could be part of a driver, since you did say. Now, our surveys are convenient surveys. So we went out and surveyed a thousand decision makers just to see if there's a there there. We monitor trends. It's not a scientific survey, but it's pretty clear to me, when I see that our results were 90% returned to the office by 2024, I see that movie, Field of Dreams. Mm. And I've been saying that for the last few years, because every year we do a survey and every year somebody's, everybody's saying, yes, we're all going to be back into the office next year. And it hasn't happened yet. So I think we're going to land somewhere. And I think we are landing in the hybrid world because there are good reasons to collaborate and to be in person with people. But I think what's coming up is, yep, companies want you to return. They're paying for space. They can't manage you remotely. They don't know how to manage you remotely. And they feel more secure if they could see you every day in the office. So there are a lot of things playing into why they want you there. But there are some good reasons. And I think some people do want to show up sometimes.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So, according to your survey, there were 43 respondents from Georgia. Is that, I guess, 43 companies uh, or people that you talked to from Georgia? 42% currently require some or all employees to go into the office, and 48% uh, plan to require some or all uh, to return to the office by the end of
1: 2024. And uh, that's. So, mm-hmm. listen to those variables in there. First of all, we have to determine what RTO means. Mm -hmm. Is return to the office five days a week, two days a week, three days a week, one Mm -hmm. day a week, two days a month, a week a month? There's a lot of versions. So take that into consideration. Then we also found in our survey is I think it's only like 15% or less. Only 19% are talking about five days a week in the office. So It sounds very drastic, but if you kind of drill down and say, yes, people are saying some people, and it's also not everybody in the company, there are some people that are still going to work remote if 80% are going in a few days. So there's no hard rules here when you say it in a sweep it sounds a lot more drastic than if you kind of drill down and say, well, what does that mean?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You know, I have worked uh, in in the professional world for many, many, many years, as I'm sure you have, and I have never imagined a time when employees could actually dictate uh, coming back to the office. You know, I mean, none of us imagined a a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, but this just blows my mind that employees can say, nope, I'm not coming back into the office. Does this surprise you?
1: You know, we all know a lot of the downsides Mm -hmm. of what we went through through Mm COVID, But I believe that the change in the work world is way better coming out of it because it did give candidates and employees, there's a war for talent. So if you are not limited to going to work for an employer that's maybe 10 or 15 miles from your house... And now you could work for somebody across the country. You got a much bigger talent pool and you got a much bigger um, variety of jobs you could apply to and ways you could work. So it increased the war on talent for some of these companies. They had to entertain drawing people in. So when employees said, but I like working remote, they had to rethink getting their employees back to the office. Because after COVID, when they wanted to call them back, they suddenly had more choices. And I don't think we've settled in, but I'll go back to my original and say when our service is nine out of ten says RTO by twenty twenty four. My question is, well, what does RTO mean?
0: Does it mean a couple of days a week or does it mean five days a
1: week back to what it was pre pandemic? And I'll put out there that we're not going back to five days a week in the office. I think those I you can't put the genie back in that bottle. <laughs> I agree. I agree. All right. Stacey
0: Haller, you are chief career advisor for Resume Builder. And thank you so much for spending some time with us. This is definitely a talker and we've got to talk again soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Leah.
0: All right, I'm about to make your mouth water. Pecan waffles, eggs, biscuits with gravy, and hash browns. You can have them scattered, smothered, or covered. You know if you know. If you don't, I'm talking about the Waffle House. And of course, all of that tastes so good, especially late at night. But just like so many other companies with frustrated employees, the Waffle House employees in Georgia have begun organizing and demanding for things like better pay, safety measures, like security and an end to unfair paycheck deductions. GPB's Amanda Andrews is in studio to talk. So, Amanda, you reported on this recently created Union of Southern Service Workers. Uh, Tell us about that.
2: Right. So the union just started last year from the work of the political group Raise Up the South. Uh, They began organizing at the Waffle Houses in South Carolina earlier this year. And from there, the movement spread into Georgia and workers here are demanding better working conditions. Okay, so they're demanding better
0: working conditions. They're also demanding better money.
2: Right, yeah. So that's like one of the main three demands right now is a minimum $25 an hour, wage, around-the-clock security at restaurants, and the end of something called mandatory meal deductions. So those deductions are about $30 um, out of each weekly check uh, for any food that employees may eat on the job. But the real irritation comes from when employees don't eat the food. Even if you don't eat those meals on the job, that deduction still coming out of your check. So a lot of people are saying that's unfair and that's what's getting a lot of the organizing going.
0: Yeah, And, you know, I didn't even know that employees that work at restaurants have to pay I, I, I automatically assumed, like, if you work at, you know, a fast food place, you get to eat free. I thought that was one of the benefits. But you're saying there's an actual pay deduction if you want to, even if you don't want to d- dine at Waffle House if you work there. Yeah. I was surprised to find that. The other thing that knocked me out of my chair, minimum wage in Georgia is five fifteen an hour. And so once I regain consciousness, I cannot mm. believe how low that is. Um, I'm seeing, like you're saying, the employees here want $25 Mm -hmm. an hour. And that is at a time when inflation is high and, you know, I'm thinking $25 an hour might not be too much. But obviously that's a huge
2: jump. A huge jump, Mm -hmm. uh, especially given that, you know, the the state minimum wage is, is lower than the federal minimum wage. And even that $7 an hour that we're seeing federally isn't enough for people to pay their bills. So $25 an hour is kind of getting people in a position to provide for themselves off of this full-time job. Mm. So you did some interviews
0: with employees. Tell us about some of the stories you've heard.
2: Right. So a lot of the concerns are around safety, especially um, with things like the Waffle House Index, you know, which we see around severe weather and employees still having to to staff the Waffle House in the midst of these crises. So um, I spoke to Gerald Green. He's what's called a, a rock star cook, which is like the <laughs> highest level of of cook you can be, manning the grill. Um, so he's been working at Waffle House for about seven years. And he used to work at a location in Tifton, Georgia, where they had a lot of severe weather.
3: Like we're closer to the coastline than we uh, than here in Atlanta. So like hurricanes were about as hurricanes kept intensifying and things have gotten worse, on, on, like, like in that area when it when the hurricane rolls through, because like, you know. The power would go out, trees would be torn up, and like things would just get really hectic and you to like keep the store open all the time during all that, which I just don't think is safe.
2: That's one pretty common situation for Waffle House workers, especially out here in the southeast. Whether it's severe weather or unruly customers, you know, there's a lot of things they're dealing with that, like regular service workers just aren't trained for. So, I mean, you don't have to dig very far on social media to find videos of a fight at a Waffle House. And that's why they're asking for security and just basic workplace safety.
0: Mm. I know one demand, I want to go back, you heard about, of course, having to work during these storms. And there is this running joke that FEMA actually follows Waffle House's lead during storms. Um, But that really does impact workers, like uh, Gerald is saying.
2: Absolutely. And that's what um, they're trying to move past, Mm -hmm. essentially, Mm -hmm. is making it so there's 24-7 security, and so workers can have reasonable time off, you know, like so the restaurants can close in the event of this severe weather. So this labor action is
0: coming at a time when several other unions have gone on strike. They've threatened strikes. Uh, The United
2: Auto Workers, screenwriters, and actors, where do you see this one going? Right. So a lot of, you know, just like blue collar workers a lot of laborers have been going on on strike or 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 unionizing or just demanding better conditions you know in my reporting i've seen starbucks uh out here in georgia i've seen amazon workers asking for better Mm -hmm. you know working conditions and so waffle house is just the latest wave of of people just looking for better pay um safety and and overall job security Mm. will they actually strike or you we're not sure yet Right. So for right now, they're still in the early stages of organizing. Like I said, they just got started earlier this year. I've been told that some actions are coming, but we're not really sure what that's going to look like. There was a walkout in South Carolina, so maybe we'll see that happen here. But for now, they're focused on circulating a petition with a list of demands on it and making sure employees across the state know about the movement and that the community is showing support. All right. So once again,
0: the Union of Southern Service Workers, they're organizing the Waffle House employees in Georgia. They want a minimum of twenty five dollars an hour. They want 24 hour security to protect them, especially late at night and to unfair paycheck deductions. I know that you are going to continue to watch that for us Amanda Andrews, you are a reporter here at GPB, and we thank you so much. Thank you. Are you registered to vote? What is the status of your voting situation? Asking because early voting is underway in your community. You will want to get read in after this next conversation on local elections. Stay with us for that on Georgia in Play. You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. In Georgia, there are no statewide or federal races on the November 7th ballot. However, early voting is underway in the state where you can vote on mayoral and council races in your communities. There are sploss questions, school board elections, alcohol rules all kinds of things that you can vote on. Here to talk about what you need to know about local elections is Chris Grant. Chris is a political scientist at Mercer University in Macon. Hi, Chris. Hi. All right. So let's talk to you. It's good to see you again and talk to you. We're talking on Zoom so I can see you. Uh, So let's first uh, deal with the elephant in the room before we get to local elections. There does continue to be a lot of talk about uh, the legal actions and uh, court dates regarding the 2020 election. What role, if any, do you think that all of these legal actions, the court dates, the trial that will come, Do you think any of that will have an effect on voter turnout this November?
4: Well, I think the worry that we've had for quite some time um, for political scientists and observers of elections and those of us that defend democracy in the United States is that people may get the sense that their vote was not counting or that it doesn't have impact. And, And I can assure you, especially in local elections, the impact is usually broad and it's more important than ever for people to be participating, but I think there is concern for us that we're going to see a downturn in political participation because of this. Um, That would be unfortunate because one of the things that's happened and it happened both with Republicans and Democrats who served as our chief chief elections officers. Kathy Cox started in the late 1990s and then carried on through Governor Kemp's time as Secretary of State, and now with Secretary Raffensberger, has been securing the accuracy of the votes in Georgia. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing. They have made a system that is very difficult to corrupt. Mm-hmm. and has redundancies for counting, as we've all seen in this last election. The one good thing about all the lawsuits and challenges that came in has been that we have found out how much security there is in the election system. One of the things that I always talk about when we talk about the president, uh, former president's call to our secretary of state was that he may have thought that we were still in the 1950s when a secretary of state could do something like that. It, it is... Not possible for our secretary of state to find votes and add them to the tally because of all the redundancies in the system. Um, So even if the secretary had wanted to comply or the governor had wanted to make this happen, they had no ability to do so because we produced multiple trails of evidence, which, as we saw, all pointed to the exact same outcome. I think in the end, we found that the count was off in presidential race by four votes. In the end, it was four or eight. Um, and yeah, out of out of a state where four million people voted, this is a very very low error rate.
0: So this November seventh, I think the anxiety level will be down for many voters because. You know, Trump is not on the ballot <laughs> this November 7th, anyway. We're not talking about yep. any federal elections. We are focused actually on uh, hyper local elections that are taking place. There are so many. Uh, and I'm wondering if any kind of stand out for you when you think about it. I mean, there's, there are mayoral elections and school board uh, that and SPLOS that'll be decided,
4: several. Uh, Well, here in Bibb County, where I work, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't seem to be a hot bed of political activity, but I live in Peach County and there seem to be a couple of city council races that are going hot and heavy. Um, And I have to be fully um, honest with listeners. I haven't yet done my research on the candidates, but I am seeing lots of activity from the candidates trying to get their names out. So I am curious as to what issues are there, in part, because um, local elections really do make a difference. They they establish millage rates in many cases, so property taxes can be established by local governments. Um, school board races determine a lot of effects on the community. Um, they can determine issues of curriculum and the kinds of curriculum that's going on and what's allowed to be taught and what's not allowed to be taught. And that certainly is something that some groups that have been very interested in controlling the agenda of school boards have gotten involved in lately. Um, And other people are suddenly surprised that they get on school boards and they make decisions and they go, but I don't like those decisions. Well, you had a chance to vote for them. Mm -hmm. And if you take time to know a little bit about them, you can usually make make an informed decision about it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Chris, you point out something doing research on these local uh, elections and and how they might really impact your life. And so many people uh, don't do that. You know, uh, if you turn on your local television or radio, you listen to, you know, of course, what they're going to be talking about, which are uh, the national elections, federal elections. But, you know, really, it's important uh, To do your research. And I used to talk to someone uh, in Macon often who used to say, you know, if there is a race for dog catcher, go out and vote. And I know I've heard that said by a lot of people, but typically these these hyper-local elections, they tend to bring out um, older voters, more conservative voters. I'm wondering, is there a reason for that?
4: We know the following things about folks that vote, vote in local elections. Um, they tend to know the people that are running. So these are decisions that they make based on what um, VO Key would have talked about in old time, Southern politics, friends and neighbors politics. (laughs) And so people typically have had firsthand um, connection to the candidates. And the second thing is, is the reason you'll see so many yard signs and so many, um, uh, such a population of it is that um the research would indicate that we in these down ticket and these are very down ticket races um oftentimes just vote for a name that we recognize we also know one other thing about politics that local politics makes a difference in it is a feeder into offices as you go up mm. so you may do your first term on a school board and then do your your second office may be a state representative and your third office might be the state senate and then who knows um we've seen people that have emerged as candidates for much higher office. So this is a a, a sort of proving ground for mm-hmm. candidates um, to begin their political careers. And so it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think local elections have more impact on our day to day lives than most of us recognize. Um, we tend to be overly focused on the president of the United States, mm-hmm. who probably doesn't have as much impact on our day-to-day lives as what a local city council might do, et cetera.
0: Chris Grant is a political scientist and educator at Mercer University in Macon. Thank you so much, Chris, for spending some time with us.
4: Thank you very much, Leah. I enjoyed talking to you. It's
0: great to see you. (laughs) Coming up, you're going to hear from an abolitionist educator on a lunch break in Georgia. What is an abolitionist educator, you may be asking? Well, we will tell you. And how he is educating children. That's ahead on Georgia in Play. Listening to Georgia in Play, I'm Leah Fleming. Have you recently been around a school at day's end? If you have, then I'm sure you think that every child in town and in the state must be at this particular school today. The pickup line is crazy. The traffic on foot and with the buses slows everything down. It's like rush hour on I-75. But all that traffic around school doesn't mean that everyone is where they should be. In Georgia, about one in four kids are not in school as much as they are supposed to be. Nationally, that number is one in three. What's being called chronic absenteeism peaked during the pandemic, which isn't surprising. But what is concerning is that now, almost two years into the return of in-person learning, teachers say that they are still struggling to get all of their kids back into the classroom. GPB's Grant Blankenship has more.
5: It's the first cool day of fall in Macon. And Principal Kizzy Lott is in a floppy green poncho and baby blue rubber boots. So students can dump water on her head. You only get a bucket if you've been regularly coming to school. And by now, Watt is wet.
6: No poncho. It's
5: here. This is fun. But in truth it's a kind of soft diplomacy. There's a message Lot needs these kids to take home today to their grown ups and their friends who miss school.
6: School attendance matters. Especially in our early grades.
5: That's Lot drying off in a conference room in her school Bruce Elementary. She says caregivers of little kids may think
6: Oh, they're just playing all day. But no, that's where the foundation of reading and the foundations of mathematical skills begins.
5: Students missing enough instruction to threaten those foundations was already a problem for Lot school before COVID. Of course, COVID made the problem more pronounced. That was true for the surrounding Bibb County School District, too. And you'd probably expect that. Stanford University professor Thomas D. knows those numbers well, too. D. studies the economics of education, including chronic absenteeism.
7: Prior to the pandemic, it hovered around 15%, which was already considered too
5: high. Then there was the instructional chaos of COVID. And so when Dee began collecting national attendance data for 2022, the first year when kids were back in classrooms.
7: My sense was that people were ready to get back to normal. So I'll confess I was surprised by the really sharp rise in chronic absenteeism.
5: What Dee found, and which he describes in a study published in August, was a doubling of the pre-COVID absentee rate across the country in districts both urban and rural. That means nearly one in three students missed too much school in 2022. What Dee's unsure of is why. It wasn't correlated to community COVID risk.
7: Or whether a state either adopted a masking mandate during that return to schooling or banned masking mandates. It was such a broad phenomenon.
2: We predicted that about a year ago.
5: <laughs> that's Hedy Chang, founder of Attendance Works. They collaborate with school systems across the country, helping them enact measures that get students back in the classroom.
2: Red, blue places, you know, different parts of the country. When I see a pattern that's happening in all of these places, I'm like, you know, I think it's probably national.
5: Georgia's average tracked the nation's in 2022. One in four missed too much school. But a number of school districts, almost entirely rural, approached almost half of their students being chronically absent. For Atlanta public schools, the number was 39 percent. When she looks around now, Cheng says this post-pandemic rise in chronic absenteeism probably isn't over.
2: It's not just a 21-22 issue. It's a 22-23 issue.
5: Back in Macon, where Principal Kizzy Lott leads Bruce Elementary, district leaders know Cheng's right, at least in their schools. Their 2023 absenteeism rate was almost twice the pre-pandemic level and was worse than 2022. Again, one in three missed too much class time. Lott has a few guesses why.
6: Homelessness is real. Financial struggles that may affect utilities That is real. Things are happening within families, whether it's illness, it's death. Those things are real life things that affect a child's attendance.
5: Lott's staff checks in with caregivers after the very first absence to try and address those sorts of issues. Jamie Cassidy is assistant superintendent for student affairs for Bibb County Schools. He says there are other resources when school counselors can't resolve things.
3: Uh, We have our social workers that are part of the process. Uh, And uh, sometimes uh, it's just a matter of talking to the parent, finding out what their needs are and getting them or educating them on
5: what's available, what resources are available. But the district only has nine social workers. In 2023, that worked out to about 1,000 chronically absent students apiece. We would love to have a social worker at every school, uh, obviously.
3: Um, so, um, we have, uh, our social workers typically have four to six
5: schools. Um, so they're, they're, they're working. They're out there. And sometimes they'll refer families to what's called the truancy task force. That's an eight-year-old consortium of social service providers, school officials, and law enforcement, because there is a state law mandating school attendance.
6: If it's gotten to us, it's already been through the task force.
5: It's Kristen Murphy, Assistant Bibb County Solicitor. About 18 times a year, a chronic absentee in some cases so severe, her office brings charges against caregivers. But they almost never see those charges through to trial.
6: At the end of the day, the most important thing is the kids being in school.
5: If you can make that happen, Murphy tells caregivers, we don't have to see a judge.
6: So that there's that carrot dangling in front of them that I'm not going to get prosecuted if I bring my
5: kids to school that deal-making typically takes about a year. Back at Bruce Elementary, Principal Kizzy Lott really would rather not have to go through social workers and the courts just to get her students where they need to be.
6: That's that's why we have to do intermittent activities. We can't say uh, when we get to the end of the semester or when we get to the end of the year.
5: So she's planning more things like dump water on the principal day, fun things she'll use to keep the importance of school attendance in her students' minds. But of course you can't lay it all on the kids.
6: We also have to think about the parent too, because my kids can't wake themselves up and get themselves to school.
5: The state of Georgia will publish 2023 school attendance data in December. For GPB News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon.
0: We're going to hear more on the challenge of getting kids to stay in class in a moment but first think about your favorite book or author that you like to read as a kid maybe you love judy bloom like i did well now imagine that someone decided that you couldn't read that book or that author how would you feel That is what is happening across the South and other parts of the country, book bans. In school districts like Cobb County and Forsyth County, there have been heated debates and the removal of some books, even the firing of a teacher over reading one of those banned books to students. I bet you care about what children in Georgia are learning as much as Anthony Downer does. Anthony serves as an educator and serves as equity coordinator in city schools of Decatur. He is also founder and lead learner of Liberation Learning and host of the podcast That Way Conversations on Education and Liberation. So you are here Anthony, hi.
3: Good afternoon, Leah. Good to be here.
0: Uh, it's good to have you. And I got to tell everybody that you are actually in between uh, your teeth Well, you're working and you're teaching and you're you're at school right now. And you're in between. Is it lunchtime?
3: Uh-huh, it's lunchtime. I'm on my lunch break with my boss list now. I'm on my lunch break. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about book bans first. So have you experienced uh, book banning in your school district? What does it, it look like? Because I think a lot of people just don't know what that really looks like.
3: Yeah, so, so as a little bit of background, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, signed three pivotal laws in 2020 to uh, the Protect Students First Act, uh, also, uh, uh, HB 1084, the Protect Student, uh, I'm sorry, the um, Parents Bill of Rights and the Harmful Contents Law. And together this trio of laws is being used to uh, censor content and materials uh, in the classroom and our libraries. And so in the city schools, of Decatur, thankfully, we have not seen any book bans um, in our school district, including our superintendent and, and um, And our Board of Education has taken a strong stance against um, book bans, so we haven't seen it. But in my role and uh, how I'm presenting myself and representing this space with Teach uh, for Freedom Collective, which is a group of K through 16 educators and Liberation Learning. We're tracking book bans all across the state, and what we're seeing is that, of course, you have the out loud and explicit case in uh, Cobb County with Katie Renderly. But what we're also seeing is that teachers are self-censoring. Librarians are self-censoring. And so to anticipate those parent complaints and the removal process formally, they're beginning to censor and take books off shelves and out of their classrooms. And I think that's a a form of uh, censorship and book banning as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that there is someone in the audience that says, well, what is wrong with preventing those books from being on the shelf in school. Those are conversations that maybe should just be had at home if if they're had at all. But what is wrong with that?
3: Yeah, there's a few things wrong. Okay, I'll I'll, uh, respond in kind. Listen, as an educator, I think that family and parent and um, choice and voice and their students' education is paramount. Our parents and families have to be engaged. And you're right there are some conversations and work that has to begin at home or works in tandem. But what these laws give parents and families the opportunity to do is if you're uncomfortable or disagree with something, then you get to remove it for a whole classroom or a whole school or a whole school district. And that violates our students' freedom to learn and our teachers' freedom to teach. I understand, of course, there's situations where parents have to step in and might wanna excuse their child, but they shouldn't have the opportunity to do that um, wholeheartedly. And we have to understand a lot of our students are up, are ahead of the game when it comes to what's appropriate, when it comes to what's um, developmentally appropriate, at their age level, or what's popular uh, in society. And we have to give our students opportunity to express themselves, be curious, uh, to ask questions. Um, and that's what we're doing. Uh, we are not Uh, Indoctrinating students were not impressive upon our um, opinions. These students as young in CSD, as young as kindergarten can understand how different families are set up and structured or how race impacts different uh, folks interpersonally and systemically. We sometimes as adults are the barriers to our students' understanding of these complex issues.
0: So turning to uh, chronic absenteeism, because I want to pick your brain about that. Um, We have one of our colleagues here at GPB uh, has been reporting on this. And I'm wondering if you have dealt with that absenteeism. I mean, we saw it happen during the pandemic but it really was a problem before the pandemic uh, from what the the numbers are showing. And it's it continues to be a problem.
3: Yes, having done some work in Gwinnett County Public Schools, Atlanta Public Schools, and now City Schools of Decatur, absenteeism in the form of uh, skipping class AWOL or uh, just unexcused absences um, has been a major problem. And that's uh, not across the board, unfortunately. When we disaggregate the data, we're seeing mostly our black and brown students mm-hmm. disengaged from the classroom. And so we have to ask ourselves, what about them is pushing them, or what about our classrooms is pushing them out? What is missing from our classroom, whether our instruction or our socialization that is pushing students out of the door where they don't feel, uh, safe and seem enough to be successful. And we talk to our teachers a lot about growing intellectual capacity, being culture responsive, but the truth of the matter is you can't do that with students who are not in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we know a lot of black and brown students don't feel a sense of belonging, inclusion, particularly when we look at curriculum and instruction, as well as the disciplinary um, and behavior practices. And so when students don't feel uh, engage when they don't have a relationship with the teacher or when they're learning content that is boring itself or taught in a way that's boring of course they're going to get up and and leave and not come back um at the on the at the same vein we also have to teach students better decision making and accountability we have to teach them time management so it's definitely a built-in approach when we talk about the solution um, but i think that when we talk about cultural responsive teaching and student engagement and students having voice and choice, we might have a solution right there in that teaching approach.
0: Uh, So you call yourself an abolitionist uh, educator. What does that mean?
3: Yes, an abolitionist teaching uh, teacher really takes the spirit of what I call my ancestors uh, who fought for the abolition of slavery, who fought for the abolition of um, uh, oppressive systems against black bodies. And they take that spirit and they apply it to the classroom. So we know ultimately public education as a system oftentimes doesn't work for a lot of students and so as an abolitionist educator what you do what you're doing is agitating disrupting those practices and policies that are antithetical to inclusion diversity equity and justice if you know something is harmful for, uh, to your children as an abolitionist educator you are standing up and actively resisting and i'll use this law as an example when i was in the classroom no matter what the law said I was going to teach my students white supremacy culture. I was going to teach them that the United States is fundamentally is systemically racist. I was going to teach these things because they are not only the truth, but my students could arrive at those same conclusions. And how dare I gaslight them when the evidence is right in front of them? And so that's an example of an abolitionist teacher that kind of uses practices used by anti-racist educators, as well as culture responsive educators to have the conversation about the uh, the Alternatives and the freedom dreaming we can do to the systems of oppression we have today. Mm.
0: Now, growing up, you did not experience that. You grew up in Georgia. Um, you didn't experience that, did you? That kind of teaching.
3: I did not experience. I didn't have any <laughs> for educators. I grew right. up in a uh, public school. No, we did not. We didn't <laughs> even have culturally responsive ones. No, let's be honest. <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness! So your um podcast, tell us about your podcast that way, D A T that way.
3: Yes, that way. So this is uh my podcast that way uh, pays homage to the north side, um, not north, the north side, ah. which is um, in Gwinnett, and I appreciate Migos, Quavo, Offset, and Takeoff for putting us on the map. I went to Burkmar High School. I, I I was in the same building. Rest in peace to take off who was my, um, would have been my graduating class. Uh, so it pays homage to where I'm from and where I grew up. And when I grew up, it was not cool to be from Gwinnett. If you <laughs> you said, no, I'm from Atlanta, I'm from Atlanta. I'm not, <laughs> nobody knows where the little bird door crosses. Uh, and so um, I had the opportunity a few years ago to work with my friend on this podcast. And I'm a talker, as you can <laughs> probably imagine. Um, and we were doing some grassroots organizing in Gwinnett and other places of uh, four policies around anti-racism and helping all students uh, feel seen and heard uh and he approached me about being on a podcast uh fast forward we are now on season four uh and now it's entirely on my own platform and so we do uh, debut wednesday november 1st uh we'll be on all platform all streaming platforms but right now you can find us on facebook and youtube Liberation Learning, um, as well as on Instagram, at Hello Liberation, Uh, check out our first three seasons. And essentially what we're doing is centering Black history and centering Black stories in an effort to combat the classroom censorship of today. Uh, Another thing about abolitionist educators, it's important for us to fight the fight inside the system, if you will. But we also know our ancestors didn't stop there they also went and built and sustained what they were demanding. And so while I'm fighting for black history, you can't stop me, because we're also gonna teach it on the podcast. Uh, And this season we'll be uh, getting more into some black stories. Of course, we're gonna um, pop off with some connection to how recent events like what happened in Israel and Palestine might impact black Americans or black people across the diaspora. Of course, we gotta talk about Cop City and most importantly, we gotta get ready for this new legislative session in January, uh, uh, during which we we think they'll go uh, to the next level when it comes to classroom censorship.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Anthony.
3: Thank you. Ashe.
0: Anthony Downer is a teacher and equity coordinator in City Schools of Decatur. He's also founder and lead learner of Liberation Learning and host of the podcast, That Way, Conversations on Education and Liberation. From the farm to the shark tank, you're going to hear the story of a UGA grad student turned entrepreneur after searching for some skincare products. That's ahead on Georgia in Play. Have you ever found yourself looking for a product on a store shelf and it's just not all that you want it to be? And you've said to yourself, somebody really needs to invent that. Well, Kristen Dunning did. She is now the founder of Gently Soap. She's a grad student at UGA in Athens and is here now to talk about her journey, which includes the sharks. We'll explain. Hi, Kristen. (laughs) Hi, how
7: are you, Leah? (laughs) Oh, it
0: is so great to see you and congratulations on all of your success.
7: Thank you so, so much. Thank you.
0: So you appeared on Shark Tank in 2023, which I'm sure was amazing. Uh, Tell us, how did this happen
7: for you? So it was a crazy type of thing. I applied in February of this year, heard back while I was like sitting at a Taylor Swift concert waiting (laughs) for her to come out. So it was like April, like the end of April. And then by June, I was filming and then it aired in September. So it was kind of like this like, Couple of months of like a whirlwind of like, am I going to be on? Like, is this actually happening? Right. To so where? It, so then it turned, and I was like, oh my god, my episode is on TV now. It's on Hulu. Like, this is crazy. So yeah.
0: <laughs> so Shark Tank, for those that don't know, uh, this is an a-, a show that's on ABC. It invites entrepreneurs to pitch their businesses, you know, their products to a panel of a group of established business investors known as sharks, and then. You get a chance to strike a deal and grow your business. Now, your business is soap. Talk a little bit about that.
7: (laughs) Yeah. So, I am the founder of Gently Soap, which we are herbal infused bath products for sensitive skin and skin conditions. I, among many things, am an eczema warrior. I have grown up my entire life with eczema. It was kind of like this lifetime companion in sorts where you kind of had to learn to live with it. And especially in the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot on the market that was specifically to bathe with joy for your skin. There were things that like, you know, like fragrance-free products and like boring white clinical bar soap. And I was just kind of inundated with steroid creams and all these like um white bottles of lotions and creams and steroids and boring bar soap and i would watch my mom come in with bags of like fun bath and body works products and be like wow I will never get to experience that kind of feeling of having normal quote unquote quote unquote normal skin products um that are super joyful and fun and smell good um because of my skin and I was tired of that feeling. I was tired of feeling left out by the personal care industry. Like you would walk down aisles and aisles of like stores and it would be like this tiny section for people with skin like mine and rows and rows of colorful, cool scented things for everyone else. And I was like, this is, this is kind of awful. Um, and I truly believe that like no matter what skin type or skin condition you have, you should be able to experience joy in your daily care routine, especially something that's like so rooted in just like, how we take care of ourselves as humans, as mm. humans, which is like bathing. I hope every single person out there bathes. Um, but <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I also am fortunate enough and blessed enough to be born into a family that has strong roots in the agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. I um, come from five generations of people in the agriculture industry, but also Black farmers, which is super rare. There's less than one percent of Black farmers in the U.S. So, um, I was. I was like born into this family that was like really connected to plants and really connected to the land and they like sought out a lot of their remedies and solutions through botanicals. And I kind of wanted to follow in that line, in a sense. So when I went to UGA, I majored in agricultural communication and horticulture. And I spent years in greenhouses learning about the power of plants, but also how to like utilize them in a way that was safe and modern for our skin types without using things like synthetic fragrances or essential oils. Um, and I created my own like herbal infusion process, which now is the basis for our line of bath products. So we have four bar soaps. We're expanding um, in 2024. So in a couple months to me actually, but um, to body washes. And I just want to like create all of the bath products that I never was able to have growing up for, but make them gentle and joyful enough for people with skin like mine. So yeah, that's oh, I love gently it. soap in a nutshell. I
0: love it. Yeah. Now where's the business now? Where, I mean, where can people get the products? I mean, how is, yeah. Yeah, what's happened?
7: Yeah. Yeah. So, um. so our biggest thing is e-commerce. So we're on our website and Amazon. Um. We also launched with 13 Loon, which is a, kind of newer age beauty retailer that focuses on BIPOC-owned brands, um, that they have their own store in um, L.A. And then we're also on their website. We're on this site called Black and Green um, as well. But um, the the sad thing is we're kind of sold out oh, wow. <laughs> um, on, on, on everything right now. <laughs> So, um, but we're going to be back in stock by the first week of November. So everywhere, including Amazon, Thirteen Lynn, whatever, will be in stock before Black Friday, before like all the craziness mm-hmm. of the holidays. Mm-hmm. But Shark Tank did its thing. And <laughs> when I tell you, I had no idea what to expect, and then all of a sudden, I woke up like the day after the show aired. and, I'm like, what do you mean we don't have anything left right. in Amazon? <laughs> like we had, we had, we had 4,000 plus bar soaps there. Like, what do you mean we sold all of them? Wow. Like, what, what, like, how does that happen in one day? And it, it's truly like, I had, I honestly, I, I was, I had heard stories of Shark Tank Brands that sell zero, like $0 worth of stuff. So I was like, you know, the the meter of what could happen is so large. There's people that are like, oh, I sold a million dollars worth of product. So we're like, I sold nothing. <laughs> so I'm like, I didn't want to expect anything or like throw all my money into inventory before. So I, it's a good problem to have, but it's also just like, oh my God, I got to get back in stock everywhere. So that's kind of been my life for the last couple of weeks. Like, how do I, one, finish getting all the orders out? Cause I still haven't even done that. There's <laughs> thousands and thousands of them to get through. But um, how do I also... Get everything back in stock so you can be ready for the holidays. So, yeah. Oh,
0: my God. This is a great problem to have. <laughs> this is really yeah. awesome. And are you yeah. still going to classes, you know, for your
7: your MBA? Yeah. So, I decided to take a break this semester, which ended up being, like, the best thing yes. <laughs> ever because I uh, could not have been doing, like, final season in the midst of all this chaos. But I will be back there starting in January to finish my MBA. Um, So, excited Uh, to learn more at school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is just amazing. Amazing. Are you from Georgia?
7: Yeah, I'm from Georgia. I'm from Dallas, Georgia. Um went to North Pauline High School and then UGA. Um, about to be a double dog when I finish in May, hopefully. Um, and yeah, I love UGA. It's everything. I love Georgia. Um, our brand's also a georgia owned brand. So yeah, that's I what I was getting ready right to say. Everything, yeah, yeah. I, I love everything about Georgia agriculture. People come out for local brands, and I feel like that's the one thing that I've learned from Georgia so much.
0: Well, this has just been <laughs> (laughs) This is such an amazing story. And uh, we thank you so much for sharing it with us. Kristen Dunning, you are the founder of Gently Soap. And uh, we thank you so much.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and for even asking me to do this. It's truly a blessing. So thank you. And that's
0: our show for today. Send us a note to askgip at gpb.org. You can listen at gpb.org and download the show on the GPB app. Chase McGee is our senior producer. Special thanks to Marilyn Ryan, our vice president of news. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week.